There have been two times in my career when I was pretty sure I was finished being a minister. The first happened in my very first job. I was just out of college and was in a church in the western suburb of Oklahoma City. And I think it was a combination of sort of my youthful immaturity and just some leadership that was struggling. But everything that happened was for me like a level 10 problem. And after a few years, I just said, you know, I don't think this is for me. I'm going to go ahead and finish out seminary, but I'm going to go to the green pastures of academia where there's just no problems, right? <laughs> so, I, you know, I, 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 was, I finished my seminary degree, and Aubrey and I were going to move. I was going to go do a Ph.D. in Old Testament at another school in a town a little bit west of here. We won't mention because there might be some rivalry, but anyway... Um, I, so I was going to go do a degree and going to be an Old Testament professor. We had our house sold. We were going to move. Aubrey had a teaching job in Mansfield. This was in 2008. I was done. I was going to go be a professor and, and forget that church work. And before we had a chance to actually move, I got a call from the Memorial Road Church of Christ that was just next door to Oklahoma Christian and they said, hey, we have this opening for an education minister position. We think you ought to apply. And I said, well, I appreciate that. I'm flattered, but we've got plans, and so I'm good. And they said, well, just, just come hang out with the staff for a day. So we did. And I was in Oklahoma City for 14 years as the adult education minister. And then toward the end of my time there, you know, listen, COVID and all the associated things with it were hard for a lot of people. And it wasn't just ministers, but it was hard on ministers because all of a sudden we were supposed to be experts in public health and epidemiology, um, in policing and use of force and racial justice and in election laws. Like we were supposed to know a lot about all those things. We don't, just so you know. We're not experts about those things. Some of us tried to be, some of us didn't. It was hard. And I just remember a few times toward the end thinking, you know, listen, I think it's time for me to make some career advancements. I've been here 14 years, and I think some things might need to change. But I remember telling friends at the time, I'm not sure what my next job will be, but it probably won't be at a church. Because, as you know, uh, right or wrong in ministry, the way you might advance your career is to go take a preaching job. And I sure wasn't going to go do that. You can see how this has worked out. <laughs> thanks be to God who will not let me go. And thanks be to this church who decided that I was not finished being a minister. I am so grateful. And I have just decided I'm a minister. That's who I am. As we round out this series on one body with many members, I debated on whether or not to do a sermon on ministers, because as you might imagine, it seems a little self-serving. But I got to thinking about the last few years, and I've been reading some of the headlines that you might have been reading, and there have been lots of headlines about the state of ministers and church leaders. And in some places, they're just not doing very well. In fact, one study really caught my attention by the Barna Group, who is sort of an expert in these things. I don't know how well you can read that chart, but just notice the decline since 2015 in satisfaction with jobs and in mental health and how people are doing. But this, this sermon really isn't about me. It is 
I have an opportunity to go to Scripture and lift up the idea of ministry. My colleagues at this church, those who serve in churches around the country, we have an opportunity for a minute to talk about that part of the body of Christ. Those who serve as ministers. And in fact, what that might mean for all of us who in our own way are called to serve in ministry. Now just a a, a note on wording. Some of you come from traditions where you might be used to calling the people who do what I do, pastor. That's pretty common. And in churches of Christ, because of our reading of scripture, we have come to the conclusion that our elders fill the role of pastor, and they are in most churches of Christ volunteers who sacrifice their time. And the people who do what I do and what others on our staff do, we call them ministers. But you're going to see in some of the quotes that I'll read that talk about pastor, and we're not going to get hung up on the wording. We've decided what we want to do. You're going to call most of us, by the way, by our first names. I'm not going to use titles for a lot of us. But just, just a note of clarification on that, because I know we have people from different backgrounds in here, so I want you to be clear on what we're talking about uh, today. I want to read to you first, not from Scripture. We'll, we're going to get to that important part in a second. But just my very favorite description of a minister comes from Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead. And I love it so much because, well, I just feel seen and a little attacked in this quote. It's, it's, it's sort of an autobiography of a minister in fictionalized format. Here's, here's the quote the minister is saying. People want to respect the pastor, and I'm not going to interfere with that. But I've developed a great reputation for wisdom just by ordering more books than I ever had time to read and reading more books by far than I ever learned anything useful from, except, of course, that some very tedious gentlemen have written books. There was a time... When my kids were younger, if you asked them, what does your dad do, they would say, well, he drinks coffee and reads books. Now, that's not entirely accurate, but it's not completely wrong. There are many other parts of being a minister, but I I do drink coffee and read books sometimes. That's part of the deal. Let's go to Scripture for a minute and see where this word shows up and how it might remind us of what ministers are called to do. When we look in the Old Testament, this word shows up mostly in like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and it has to do with the temple ministry of priests. So we go to a verse like Exodus 29:30, and it says, "The son who succeeds Aaron as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear the sacred garments for seven days." Here's someone who's coming to minister. In the holy place. Here, this means like some sort of worship leading. Or in Numbers 16.9, when Moses is talking to a man named Korah who has rebelled. Moses says, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community. And brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle. And to stand before the community and minister to them. Again, this is sort of an upfront public leading of God's people. But then as we move through history, we get to the first century AD, we get to Greco-Roman society, and the word minister is often used of public servants, of public officials. And it's still that way in some places in the world, right? Think of the prime minister right? or the minister of tourism. That really isn't religious. That's a public official. That's a title. 
that they wear. And this shows up in Scripture too. When Paul's talking about one of our favorite subjects, taxes, in Romans 13, Paul says, This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. That word servants there, that's ministers. When the New Testament talks about minister in a religious setting, sometimes it is a role with a title. In Romans 15, Paul says, Because of this grace God gave me, then verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So Paul connects this role he has to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, and he says that's kind of a priestly duty, connecting it back to what we read about in the Old Testament. Really, in the New Testament, it's just a generic word. Sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's just a verb has to do with serving. It really just means someone who serves or a servant. So Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. That's just the verb form of minister, to take care of. Of needs. And as history progressed in early church history, post first century, it began to be sort of a title again. It began to be associated with what we might call the clergy and maybe tied back to the more official roles that we see in the Old Testament. But if you think about recent history, the role has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? And it might mean something different. In different churches and what they want from their ministers. In some places, it might be a visionary CEO. In some places, it might be the lead teaching voice. In other places, it might be the chaplain. And all those things are really part of it, but it really has to do with what you want to emphasize and what you want in a minister. We also know that maybe in recent years, ministers, pastors, church leaders... They maybe have taken a PR hit a little bit. There's less respect for ministers than there might have been in the past. You know, there's some scandals. But listen, I would contend that there's always been an element of that. It's not new. Some of you may know of the 1960 movie Elmer Gantry, which was required viewing for some of my ministry classes. And this movie is just about this guy who figures out that he can make a lot of money by preaching something he doesn't believe in or want to follow. But he's just, he's just a bad character. And for some generations, that phrase was synonymous with you know, a minister who's just in it for their own benefit and is not a person of good character. That was back in 1960. But there are all sorts of headlines that you may have seen in recent years that remind us that there are a lot of scandals that happen. And when church leaders and ministers are involved in scandals, it can hurt our faith in Jesus, it can hurt our opinion of church in general, it can hurt our view of ministers. And we're all acutely aware of that. But here's what I know. Beyond the headlines, that there are thousands of people every day who serve as ministers, who keep their head down, 
who are not in this for personal gain or glory, who are not trying to make money off people, who serve quietly and faithfully in service to God. They are the ministers that I know. And I serve alongside people just like that. And I serve in a line of people just like that. So I've been working on this little project the past couple of weeks. I call it a project. Some of my colleagues might call it an obsession, and that's okay. That's fair. (laughs) And wondering who um, the people who have served before, what they were like at this church. And the people who not just have preached, but have served in ministry in different ways. So I went digging through a lot of audio archives. And I found most, not all, of the people who have served here before. So I want to take a moment to let you hear from them. Those who have faithfully served as ministers in different roles throughout the years. And you might consider this video that you're about to watch, it's, it's, a, it's kind of my love letter to those who have served faithfully before and whom I serve alongside. So take a look at this video and you may recognize some of these people. We'll just go back to the Word of God that doesn't make any difference who's wrong, how far wrong he may get, how much influence he may have. We can anchor those who evaluate properly the Word of God in their heart, who love the truth, and who are determined to know the truth and to be made free by the truth. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't say go into this village or this state or this nation. He thought bigger than that. He said go into all the world. You can't get any bigger than that, can you? I'll tell you, I don't know of anything that's more arresting and more thrilling and more motivating than for us to believe what Paul said in that great prayer, that God's divine power that could actually raise Jesus after three days and nights in the tomb from the dead, that that same divine power is in us. God had a purpose for wonderfully inspiring and revealing and recording and preserving his word. That purpose? was that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we might have life through his name. The reason that our preaching lacks the power of the preaching of the first century is the absence of this reference to the resurrection from most of our preaching. We don't talk about it much, except in funerals and maybe on Easter. For if the dead are not raised, neither hath Christ been raised. And if Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. God wants to be near you. He wants to fill your heart every moment of your life, even when you sleep. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And it's almost as though he is saying, don't you understand that I do the things that a servant does because I am inherently a servant. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh. Let me tell you the story of Jesus, because our attitude should be the same as that man. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And his desire for your life, all the purposes that he has, plans for you, for hope, for a future, the joy that he feels in your presence, 
you will feel those as you connect with them. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those he calls. And he has called all of us who know him to live and to share the hope that we have found in him with the world around us. When we are baptized, we are putting our hope and our trust and our faith in Jesus, that Jesus gave his life for us so that we might have eternal life. We celebrate his covenant, that we are redeemed and that we are welcome because we are in his presence. In this world, you have tribulation, but take courage, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. We thank you that you love us, that you're our Father, that you're a wonderful Savior. And Father, we thank you for this church. We ask that your Spirit be among us. You don't repent in Jesus' ministry because you want him to love you, because you want him to eat with you, because you want him to accept you. You repent because he's already loving you. He's already accepted you. He's already forgiven you. He's already willing to sit down and eat with you, no matter what your reputation is. God's Spirit, his presence, his very essence lives in each of us. The Spirit of God lives in each of you. When we cry out to the Lord in Hosanna, we praise his name and we call on him for help, but we cry out with hope because we know how the story ends. You see, choosing joy isn't just something we do in a moment. Choosing joy is something that builds on for the future. Thank you for each and every heart that has walked through the doors of this church, God. May we welcome more and more people as the years go on, God, and may we continue to praise you and your glorious name. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do and he will show you which path to take. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There is much beauty taking place in our midst, in our life, in our world even. Though there be suffering, though there be pain, we are surrounded by beauty. And I'm so thankful for the beauty of the local church. Thanks be to God for these servants, these faithful women and men who have taught us, who have helped us draw closer to Jesus, and who have served this church in faithful ways through the years. But I want to close with a charge for all of us. If you go on our church website and you look at our core values, you'll see one of those values says, every member is a minister. We believe that from Scripture. Let me read this to you. We believe that every single Christian has a role to play in God's story. But because God gives us each unique gifts, talents, and resources, no two Christians play the same role in the same way. Whether it's volunteering on Sunday mornings, doing our jobs with excellence during the week, serving our neighbors when they're in need, or a combination thereof, we're all empowered by the Holy Spirit to be ministers of the gospel. So when you bring a meal to someone in grief, you join these faithful servants in serving as a minister. And when you show up to teach children or teens or adults, you are serving as a minister. When you provide supplies and comfort to a family who's just lost part of their home in a fire, you serve as a minister. When you sit at the church building for hours on a Saturday to receive flowers that will be used to honor a loved one the next day in the funeral. 
you serve as a minister. When your Bible class shows up to make lunch for and comfort a grieving family, you are serving as a minister. When any of us takes time to patiently listen to someone pour out their heart and their struggles, we're serving as a minister. And so, this morning, may we give thanks for those who've given their lives to the service of ministry, but then may we join them in lifelong, sacrificial, ministerial service to others. Let's be standing.